We are now firmly with this Sunday in the green season, the Sundays in ordinary time or the Sundays after Pentecost. And so uh, this is the longest season of the church year. It's about 26 weeks. And it's the time when the church uh, preaches and teaches about the nature, cost, and the ways and means of Christian discipleship. And also it's the season when uh, preachers are given some license to use it as a teaching opportunity about the faith and belief of the church. So what I'm going to do this morning is to talk a bit about the lectionary, the readings that we read on Sunday, where they come from, and what sort of the internal uh, rationale is for the readings that we use. And then to say something about two of the readings this morning from Galatians and from Luke's Gospel. For about the last 35 or nearly 40 years, the Episcopal Church uh, moved with the revision of the prayer book in 1979 from a one-year lectionary, which meant you read the same readings every year, which put an undue burden, I might add, on preachers to preach about the same thing year after year after year, to a three-year lectionary, year A, year B, and year C. And, of course, the self-evident benefit to that is not merely to be easy on the preachers. That was not high on the list. But what was high on the list was to read more of the Bible. You know, for a church that gets accused of not being very interested in the Bible, uh, if you came to church every Sunday and you read morning and evening prayer during the week, by the end of each year, you'd have read about 85% of the Bible. So we read a lot of Bible in the Episcopal Church. The three-year lectionary is a lectionary that uh, now with the revised common lectionary, we have two tracks. When the revision first started, the Episcopal lectionary invariably had the, the Old Testament reading uh, and the gospel relate to one another thematically. And the readings from the epistles poodled along on their own sequence and did not necessarily relate to either uh, the Old Testament reading or the gospel. One of the other benefits to the, to the new lectionary was that every Sunday we read something from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. And so people heard the uh, biblical witness from the Hebrew Bible, which the writers of the New Testament understood to be their sacred scriptures and the recording of the history of salvation. So we read much more of the, of the Old Testament. There are, it's a three-year cycle, year A, year B, and year C. And what drives this is the gospel that we read as the default gospel in that particular year. So in year A, we read from Matthew. In year B, we read from Mark. And in year C, which we're in now, we read from Luke. And in all three years, those gospel readings are supplemented by readings from the gospel according to St. John in cer certain times of the year. So in year C... In the Old Testament readings, we're going to hear now during the Green Sundays from the prophets. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be reading from First and Second Kings, and we're going to be focusing on Elijah and Elisha, 
sometimes called the Elijah-Elisha cycle. And we're going to hear from uh, Jeremiah. And we're going to hear from some of the lesser prophets like Haggai. Remember what I say to you all the time. A major prophet is a prophet that has a big book. And a minor prophet is a prophet that has a little book. Right? So the majorest major prophet is Jeremiah. That's the longest book in the Old Testament. And then there's Isaiah. And then there's Ezekiel. And then we have Amos and Haggai and Hosea and all of the minor prophets who have little books. So that's the reason. It's not the, the, the content of what it is they're writing, major and minor, but the size of the book. So it's just that simple. We read also, in addition to Luke's gospel in the epistles, we're going to hear from Galatians for the next five weeks. Then we're going to hear a little bit from Colossians. And then we're going to hear a little bit from Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. In this cycle, in the Revised Common Lectionary, none of the readings relate to one another. So they are, they are uh, chosen uh, for their own merits. In the second track of the Revised Common Lectionary, we do have a relationship between the Old Testament reading and the Gospel. But this year we will be reading uh, the track one, it's now called, of the, of the uh, Revised Common Lectionary. So let's talk a little bit about Galatians. I've been very interested in Galatians recently, and so it's interesting now that it's come up and will be for five weeks. So fasten your seatbelts, because we're going to talk a lot about Galatians. Today... Paul is writing the church in Galatia. Let me say before I start with this, um, when I was in seminary, what I was taught about Galatians was that it was written in the middle of Paul's career after the council uh, at Jerusalem, which is mentioned in the book of Acts, and it was addressed primarily to the church, churches in northern Galatia, Galatia's in Turkey. So it's in the northern part of the province of Galatia. But since my time in seminary, there's been a whole lot of scholarship done, and there is a view which I've come to be persuaded by, and that is that this book was written early in Paul's career, after his first missionary journey, and he was back in Antioch, and he was writing to the churches in South Galatia. And this is important because it was before the council in Jerusalem and he's sorting some things out uh, that will be the subject of the dialogue between Paul and the Jerusalem apostles when he goes there for this council. So he's opening his epistle today, you know, Paul, thing, grace to you and, peace, and that sort of thing. This is the coldest introduction that he writes to any of the churches. Paul's letter to the Galatians is the most polemical letter that he writes in his missionary work. He comp does not compliment them at all. You know, usually say like, to the Philippian church, you're wonderful, you've done all these things, and your steadfast faith and loyalty to God. No. Because here he is talking about a defense of his apostleship, and he's speaking to them 
about the source, the origin of how he understands the work of Christ and his mission as an apostle. And so he tells them that this revelation that he has received is direct from Christ. It isn't from some human source. And it's interesting because in other places, Paul will say in his letters, I have received this and I'm passing it on to you. One of the most notable places that he does this is in 1 Corinthians when he speaks about the Last Supper. And he puts the words of institution in his letter, which he says, I have received this and I am passing it on to you. But to the Galatian church, he's speaking to them about the direct revelatory experience he claims to have received from Christ. Now, the reason he's saying this is there's some people who've come into South Galatia and have said that Paul has spoken to him in a way that is not complete. And they're now going to correct that lack. And Paul wishes to intervene on, this, on the behalf of his view and explain what it is. And Galatians is going to be about that. And in Galatians, we're going to have some conversation about the theme that's in both today's reading from Galatians, or beginning it, and what we read in the Gospel. Who's in and who's out? Who's in and who's out? How do you get in and how do you stay in? When I was in seminary, they said what Paul was having trouble with in Galatia were a group of people called Judaizers. And that's really a misnomer because what a Judaizer is and popularly understood to be then was a Gentile who wanted to be a Jew and did everything like that except go the whole way. Go through the ritual processes necessary to do that. Men must be circumcised, the dietary laws must be kept, and you must keep the Sabbath. Well, who came into South Galatia were real Jewish Christians who were Jews who had believed now in the Messiahship of Jesus. And they said to these proselytes and other people in Galatia, Gentiles, you now, if you want to do this right, you have to do the whole Megillah. Men must be circumcised, you must keep the dietary laws, and you must keep the Sabbath. And Paul says to them, if you start down this road, you are going to find yourself going backwards and not forwards. Because here's part of the, re of the revelation that Paul received. And it's driven to some extent also by his own experience as a pious Jew. Christian people for over 500 years have been led to believe that Judaism is a religion of law-keeping. It is an onerous, tedious thing you need to do in order to get in. And we have principally re received support from this in terms of the interpreters of Paul who were German Lutherans and who believed that Paul was speaking about works righteousness and you can't blame them because they were living in the medieval church, which had become, for some, a ticket-punching 
enterprise whereby you needed to do this in order to get in or stay in. But for a pious Jew, by the way, this is what has always been puzzling. In, in the few instances where, where I've attended conferences where we have the Jewish-Christian dialogue, many of the rabbis and, and Jews contemporarily can't understand why we think of Judaism in this fashion. They don't get it because they think this isn't what we understand law-keeping to be about anyway. The law was kept to stay in. You're in as a Jew if you believe in the covenant and are a person of the covenant that was established between God and Abraham. Now you do this as a sign of your love for God and your desire to stay in. So what Paul is concerned about is what is necessary to get in. And what is necessary to get in is belief in Christ. Belief in Christ. So if you're a Gentile and you believe in Christ, you're in. If you're a Jew and you believe in Christ, you're in. You're not in if you keep the law. That's not the thing that gets you in. And by virtue of that, you begin, once you're in, to understand this, the intensity of this covenantal relationship, which means that God is steadfast and always with you and will never run away. And by virtue of that, it means also that you are going to be steadfast and you're going to stay in. And you're going to do that and stay in by being a reflection and transparency of God's grace and love as you live in relationship with other people. And so Paul is beginning today to now build the case. We're going to get to the passage where he rebukes Peter, who comes to Galatia from Jerusalem sits down and eats at table with Gentiles until the Jerusalem apostles, more of them, arrive in Galatia, and then he steps away. And Paul rebukes him publicly because the issue of who's in and who's out comes up publicly with the table laws. One of the things that's left out of a lot of Reformed theology is the last part of that controversy. Or is God the God of the Jews only and not the Gentiles? So, as I said, fasten your seatbelts because there's going to be more on this later about Galatia and what Paul is attempting to do to build his case. Who's in and who's out. The reading from the gospel, from Luke's gospel today, is about who's in and who's out as well. And it is the gospel example from Luke of how we have seen now the incorporation and the authoritative okay from Jesus about Gentiles. And for Luke, this is going to be very important because, you know, he wrote a two-volume set he wrote the gospel, and he wrote the book of Acts. So in chapter 15 or somewhere in the book of Acts, somewhere else, he talks about the conversion of Cornelius the centurion. 
and we read about that uh, a few weeks ago. But today, the story is that Jesus is approached by some uh, Jewish elders in Capernaum, and they speak to him about a Roman centurion who has been a very faithful person and a great supporter of our people. And so you can read in that, in terms, in the original languages, a proselyte, which is an example of one of these Gentiles who is extremely drawn to Judaism and, in fact, is a supporter and sort of hangs around the precincts. He builds the synagogue for them, but he's not converted. He hasn't become circumcised. He doesn't keep the dietary laws. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But he's friendly towards Judaism and supports them. So they say to Jesus, he has a slave who is ill and dying. Could you come and heal him? We think it's a good idea. Now, the extraordinary thing in this particular passage is that Jesus agrees and is on his way. In the world that Jesus lives in, Jews don't go into the houses of Gentiles. They don't do that. So he's on his way and he's met uh, before he gets there from some of uh, the, the centurion's minions who say to him, I'm not worthy that you should come into my house. If you speak the word, I know you can heal my servant. One of the fraction anthems, confractoria, they're called in, in the old liturgy, is when the priest holds up the bread and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou should come under my roof, but speak the word only and my soul shall be healed. And that's a direct lift from this part of Luke's gospel. And so Jesus heals the man. And when they return, there he is. He doesn't have to go in. But Luke puts this in here because Luke is concerned about something. And that is he now in his Christian community is struggling with who's in and who's out. And what we have discovered, even with Luke, the great apostle to the Gentiles, is he is the Shakespeare of the New Testament. His Greek is the absolute best. And he is speaking to primarily a Gentile audience, but the reality is his own community, which once was a largely Jewish Christians, is now majority Gentile. So how do you do something about this change? How do you manage this change? And so Luke, writing in 85 AD, 50 years after Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, another generation or two later, is writing about the distance, not just geographical or theological, but generational. And so how do we talk about what that might mean? You know, if we think about it in contemporary terms, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on in this culture over the last many years that represents huge generational changes in terms of the way people manage change, in terms of what they think is important, in terms of how they understand the deep things of human existence, let alone Christianity. And so this is in the gospel to say what you'll read also in the book of Acts after Pentecost that we need now to say everybody is in, Jews and Gentiles alike, 
that decision was simply momentous for Christianity. And it is a call to all Christian people to understand that we err on the side of inclusion and not exclusion. You know, throughout my ministry, I've come to the place and have for many years, why have Christians spent so much time on figuring ways to keep people out? Instead of figuring out ways to keep people in. You know? And I've preached recently on this a number of times about the pastoral experience of the church. Do the stories we hear mean anything? from people about their life experience, about their personal history, about their attempt to be faithful and do stuff that is completely uh, foreign to them in a way that isn't just skeptical or cynical, but simply impossible. And so these readings today have something to do with The way you're in is to believe in Christ. The way you stay in is to believe in Christ and to express the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control as you live your life in the world in relation to other people. And then you become an instrument of the saving work of Christ, the healing work of Christ. So this week, give thanks for the possibility Uh, to be somebody that labors to keep people in. Uh, That doesn't always mean, by the way, you have to get outside your comfort zone. It means you need to just do it. Amen.